This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And yes, this is the Deep Dive, and I'm Brooke Spector, and we are, once again, it's Friday morning, 9 o'clock, and you are tuned to a station that gives you an in-depth look at a current idea, or someone's writing, or someone's thinking, or someone's questions. Today, we're, we're really pleased to have uh, an American author, Eve Fairbanks, to talk with us about the larger texture of her new book, The Inheritors. I guess it's not quite new. It's newly published. She's been sitting on it for years and years trying to get it to its final state before it was handed over with fear, trepidation, and enthusiasm to the publishers to get this thing across the finish line. Uh, she's an accomplished journalist and correspondent, and she's written works some fairly serious newspapers in the world, the New York Times and the Washington Post, the Guardian, and she was a uh, an editorial person with a, a fairly esteemed U.S. News, uh, magazine, not a newspaper, really, The New Republic, which has been around since uh, 1919, I think, or 1920. Original editor was uh, Walter Lippmann, if I'm not mistaken. Possibly the first or the second, but one of the big kind of titans of that magazine, yeah. It's been a decider and an influencer before that word was ever created for public and media. And so it's it's a real pleasure uh, to to have Eve with us. Uh, I want to ask you one question before we take a hint, hint, deep dive into your book. I'm sorry, that's a really bad joke. I I, I apologize. Dead Um, dead humor morning, yeah. (laughs) It just intrigues me, the title, The Inheritors, only because on my bookshelf somewhere, is a copy of a William Golding novel, The Inheritors, which is about the passing of Neanderthal man being replaced by Cro-Magnon man in Europe. And it's a supposed what happens and how people are thinking. And it's a novel, obviously, of one society transitioning and transforming to another. And there was a slight echo for me there in that sense uh, with your book, because your book is talking about a society that's rebuilding itself well or badly, I guess the reader gets to decide. Books on South Africa tend to fall into a couple of categories. There's no end to books on South Africa by South Africans who are introspective in an extraordinary kind of way, as well as books of foreigners who show up uh, who look either aghast or uh, enthralled by what they see going on. For me, the, the two of the most intriguing and, shall we say, it, it influences on my own thinking about the country are two very different works. One is Joe Lellifeld's Move Your Shadow, which I'm sure you've seen over years ago, mm-hmm. and um, an essay by P.J. O'Rourke in his collection of Holidays in Hell. Uh, which if you haven't read it, he's in South Africa during the state of emergency in 1986, I think, and he is driving around interviewing people what they think about the future and gets the usual range of, of answers and attends any number of parties. The other version of writing on South Africa is, you know, sociological or anthropological studies, uh, which analyze in great and grave detail the effects, the malevolent effects of apartheid. 
But your work is is different in a way because it doesn't. It's it's anthropological in a sense, but it isn't a broad look at a society. It's close look at a few selected people. Tell me how you got to that approach. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in terms of the the title, the, oddly, I had not encountered the inheritors by William Golding until after I came up with that title for my book. And then we had to think, you know, can you reuse it? Uh, and um, but I think it came from from two. It arose out of two sort of impulses or or ideas or intuitions. And the first was definitely the story that I learned. I was 10 in 1994. So South Africa, the transition, Mandela was taught a little bit in high school and then we read in college. And and it was kind of a tabula rasa story, this kind of triumphal erasure of the past. Or the, the idea was that this struggle from various perspectives, um, had swept something away, had, had kind of conquered, vanquished apartheid, obviously removed something. And then you had this chance to start from a blank slate to some degree. And, you know, I moved here in 2009 and was struck from the beginning that not only did people you know, still have a lot of memories. In some cases, were burdened by them, um, kind of mores and values and ideas about, you know, what success looks like, what certain neighborhoods ought to look like, who is and isn't competent, still persisted to a huge degree, but also people didn't necessarily want to let go or completely abandon their memories of what they had fought for, what in the 80s they had hoped for, you know, who they had been, this kind of euphoria in the 90s as a benchmark. So that made me think of that word, the inheritors. I think there was also, so I I have a huge love, really, for the Bible as literature. And, you know, something in terms of kind of coming into a place that's new, Canaan or whatever, that's that's sort of a great new start, but it's also in some way an inheritance. There's kind of um, resonance of that in the book, I would hope. As you say, it's a little bit of a different type of book. I don't always know how to describe it. Sometimes people say, oh, it reads like fiction because there are these. I know it's not, but it does have. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There are these people that you get to know almost as friends um, who are, who had a role. um, Two of them were born in 1970, 71. Um, and one was an anti-apartheid activist as a teenager in Soweto. And she was in her neighborhood at the head of a street committee, people's committee. And the other was one of the, was in an elite military unit, the 32 battalion elite at the time. Um, one of the last men drafted, conscripted under apartheid and then joined that military unit. So they were kind of close to the epicenter of this struggle, but they weren't, you know, your, Mandela or Ramaphosa or Mbeki or Joe Slovo or whatever. Those names are overdone in description and writing. They really are by my, by my lights anyway. I think they really are. And you know, it was something when I, uh, I spent four years reporting in Washington before I moved here and 
we were very, very, very focused on the principles. So like John McCain at the time, Barack Obama, you were just, you would spend weeks trying to line up one interview for 20 minutes with that person. And it sounds a little corny, but I really believe it is that most political actors are ordinary people in a democracy, even a democracy that's functioning not in an ideal way. You know, they're people who are affected, but who are also just living, li- you know, living kind of politics and having an impact. And, 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 uh, so I wanted to write about people like that. And in the end, um, I've done a lot of different stories here on, the University of the Free State and a kind of racial incident that happened there on Marikana, on the drought in Cape Town. And at a certain point, I sat down and I asked myself, who do I think about the most just for myself? If I'm talking to uh, people in the United States or even people here and I'm saying, you know, I just met this person whose story was so fascinating in terms of coming to terms with views and memories that in some ways they felt like they're not supposed to have a kind of ambiguity of, of feeling about the country that they feel at times ashamed of, of, of holding. And I just decided to write at great length about the people that, that whose stories I thought were the most iconic in a way, but that I also just thought about the most. So in the end, it was those two, um, this ex-soldier, this activist, and then that activist daughter who is a born free, born in 1992, grew up in a, in a shack in Soweto and ended up getting two master's degrees. Um, so had this really kind of intriguing post-apartheid journey and a lot of mixed feelings for her that I thought were so fascinating in terms of, you know, what, what do I still owe people who still are living, you know, in Soweto? Um, how do I reconcile, you know, that I ended up in a position that's, you know, that I have a house in Santon um, as a young black woman when, when so many others have been left behind. Uh, Eve, we're going to take a short station break and commercial message. Got to make everybody happy. This is Brooke Spector with The Deep Dive, and we're talking with author and journalist uh, Eve Fairbanks, and we'll be back in just a minute. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we're back with the deep dive, and this is Brooke Spector, and we're talking with Eve Fairbanks, author, journalist, and chronicler. I think that's the word I want to use, chronicler of a society that is being reborn or changing. And I, I'm trying, I'm struggling with trying to determine uh, if your book, The Inheritors, uh, shows you basically as a pessimistic optimist or an optimistic pessimist or somewhere <laughs> else. <laughs> Tell me about that. That's such an interesting way to put it. I might put it as like a poetic realist, <laughs> as in there's a, maybe that's not, I don't know, but there, there's something, I, I started to feel um, that there's something quite beautiful and, and, and valuable in even the ways that people that I spoke to in South Africa struggle, even in their disappointment, because if you still have the capacity to be disappointed, I know a lot of cynics in America, and I feel they've almost lost their capacity to be disappointed 
and the flip side of, of feeling disappointed is that you still, you still have some hope. You still have some expectations. And, you know, I, I heard these powerful stories of disappointment in land reform and, but I felt that, that people were still really trying and there was something, something quite beautiful about that. I maybe I think I will say that one element of the book, which people may or may not find interesting is I do, I did feel sincerely that there are some interesting resonances between American politics and South African. As, I want to ask you, yeah. because it's an obvious, it sits there sort of, you know, quivering and waiting for someone to say it. Yeah. And, you know, I've lived, I lived for two years in Kenya. I lived in Brussels. I didn't feel that way about either of those societies. Sometimes, occasionally someone will say, well, don't you, you know, as a solipsistic American, maybe you just see Americanness everywhere. But I think that's not true. I think that probably the two countries are very different, but most similar in terms of their segregationist history, their history on race. Um, so there's that. But I also started to feel that, you know, both countries have a kind of redemption narrative. They're kind of redemptive, exceptionalist stories in their own way. And they want, they're play, they're places where people are not satisfied with it just being a place where you live. You want it to, you know, people want it to be a story that has a kind of uplifting moral or that reveals possibilities about how people can live together after trauma, et cetera. And, you know, I feel it's very burdensome. Honestly. Yeah, I mean, American, when, I, when I've taught American foreign policy, uh, I made people read uh, uh, John Winthrop's sermon, Shining City Upon a Hill, mm, uh, yes. which he wrote before he even stepped foot in what became America. He was still on the ship when the thing was written. And already he was creating this idea, not simply of redemptive, but this enormously goal-oriented, higher-purpose uh, kind of effort that the country would become once it became something. And South Africa, for in, in many ways, does have that same texture to it, even if it has sometimes been put to some fairly perverse purposes. Yeah, and I feel it has two two sides to it. On the one hand, this feeling that, you know, you'll sometimes hear people say, this country could be so amazing if only. This country could be so great if only. This country has incredible, you know, human capital, human potential, uh, a real kind of survivor and fighter spirit, which I think is really true. And then uh, the converse is that I was struck during COVID that, you know, people almost felt seemingly relieved to have kind of a moment when they could, you know, rise to a challenge, come together, be in a crisis. There can be an addictive quality to crisis where you feel that it's a chance to show your true colors, show, show capacity. But the question well, then becomes... Is a good crisis. Honestly, you know, I had a friend who... Who said that to me? Um, and, and I think we saw that. I saw that a little bit when I went to Cape Town during the drought. It, it really brought incredible capacities and energies out in people. But you also can't live in that mode forever. And there's there's a kind of feeling, I think, that goes a little bit beyond just optimistic or pessimistic. It's funny, again, when I lived in Belgium and in Kenya, those questions aren't asked as much mm -hmm. because 
it would be odd to say I'm optimistic about Belgium. You know, there's a the underlying sense Belgium will still be here probably in a hundred years, a hundred, you know, it might be crummier or, you know, but it's not, it's not going to have a kind of denouement or a kind of final collapse or, you know, or a kind of final, you know, oh, this has worked. This is, this has been good. This is, there's a good, we can now say this was a, this worked, this, this, we managed, we succeeded. The project is finished, done, dusted, and everybody's happy and, uh, there we are, and we can go about our business forever being pleasant and eating chocolate and having waffles. I think if, I do think if one thinks in terms of optimism or pessimism, that question is biased toward you're going to end up having to be pessimistic because there's always going to be so many bumps, so many disappointments, so many troughs. Um, I think it's a little bit of a self, can be a self-defeating, self-sabotaging kind of way of thinking about a place that people are going to be living in for many more generations. We're speaking with Eve Fairbanks, who's uh, published her new book, uh, The Inheritors, which tracks the ideas, the circumstances, the vicissitudes, the hopes and disappointments of three people uh, in South Africa that are seen as a kind of representative sample, although not representative. A sociologist would, would end up arguing you didn't draw up a, a randomized cluster survey and pick the right names. And an economist would say your data doesn't, doesn't, your conclusions aren't supported by your data. But as a literary project, the views, uh, the views, the ideas, the hopes, disappointments, et cetera, of the three, of the people you profile, people you get inside their heads of, I think, in a significant kind of way, they do represent, uh, many of the strains and strands, uh, that this country has. Of course, this place always reminds me of William Faulkner's norm, uh, rejoinder about history. That the history isn't over. It's, it, it, I can't remember the precise quote now. You probably can. The past isn't over. It's not even past. Yeah, there we go. That's it. There you go. Oh, Thank okay. you. That's the right way. And I should have written that down. I mean, it, it always gets used because South Africa always strikes me in some ways as a, a kind of unusual echo of the American South more than it is much of the rest of the country. There are historic overlays. There is defeat. There is uh, a kind of ritualized and legalized uh, oppression uh, that is overthrown and sneaks back in in various ways and that people still rise through above and around it in in many circumstances how did you pick these three people that was it wasn't random obviously and you didn't meet them together at a dinner party how did how did you end up with these three avatars of the new south africa yeah you know i specifically uh tried to get away from the exemplar because i do feel like south africa is often written about in a sociological way where there's a kind of exemplar, so the domestic worker or the, um, I don't know, white farmer or like the, who's the victim of crime or, and in some par- way, you know, I did I initially kind of had that. I had the idea, okay, I'm going to have 
two to three people who, you know, let's say an, an emerging black farmer, which I chose because that, you know, agriculture was such a kind of quite an Afrikaans thing in a lot of the country. It felt very freighted in, in that way. And, you know, let's see, you have this exemplar of what it's like to kind of take over that role. And I, I sort of realized you had to leave out a lot of the kind of spiky texture and the real humanity when you treated them like when you treat them as examples. And so, you know, there was a a story that I wrote on a court case of some young men in Bloemfontein at the university who were charged with crimen injuria, uh, which some people may know what that is. It's it's quite a distinctive local charge of injuring another's dignity. And their lawyer was this fascinating figure who said, you know, I feel that I almost inspired these boys to do this because of my own unresolved issues from being in the army. So then he told me that whole story. That's how I picked him. Uh, and I met this activist through her daughter, who was this born free, who had written some on, on Roads Must Fall. And mm-hmm. so there's a real mother-daughter story of kind of the the tensions between generations, what it means to try to to live up to the expectations of a mother, maybe having had a Jewish mother of a certain kind. I actually really resonated with that, this mother-daughter. So that's how I chose those three main figures. We're speaking with Eve Fairbanks, author of The Inheritors, a new book, or at least very newly released in South Africa. She's on a book tour now, I think, actually, um, hmm. to promote this. It's a fascinating piece of, piece of writing. It, it's novelistic, except that it's not. I mean, it, they're real people and they're real things, but it, it gives you the feeling of having stepped into a, the world in a novel, uh, which is, um, quite refreshing as a, as a, as a work to, to read. And we're going to take a short break and go to, um, station break, obviously, and we'll be right back with more conversation with E. Fairbanks. This is the deep dive with Brooke Spector. And we are back with the deep dive. I'm Brooke Spector and we are taking a deep dive into Eve Fairbanks's new book, The Inheritors. Um, I've introduced her already, but I'll just briefly say she's been a correspondent in many places. She, uh, considerable time in South Africa and this book follows the, uh, the life, the trials, the hopes, the disappointments and the fears of three different people. Uh, it's worth a read, folks. Go get it. Uh, there a little plug, little plug here. Go buy the book. <laughs> well, that was, that was Eve saying that. Um, <laughs> I, in your bio that, that I searched, um, it's, you're, you're from Northern Virginia, an area I know pretty well. Um, you went to Thomas Jefferson High School for science and math, I think. Is that right? Yes. yes. But you were a Civil War buff, which is, I think, Slightly unusual for a young woman, but not so unusual perhaps for somebody in Virginia, since much of it took place there. But you, you apparently forced your family to drag you around to every battlefield in, in Virginia as a child. How did that get you, if at all, to South Africa in your mind? Or is there a connection? There is a connection. I mean, there's something about the way that we were taught as um, kids in in 1990s U.S., 
130 years later about the Civil War, which made it feel very beautiful as um, a kind of suffering and sort of suffering for this this thing that that had started very wrong, that was a very a contradiction in the American idea, profound, profound contradiction, and then was faced as a contradiction. A war was fought over it, and and there was and this was resolved. I mean, that was the story. And certainly and this has changed, but when I was growing up, there was not a lot of discussion about race, despite Washington, DC being unbelievably segregated and as a city. And th- there was a little bit of the sense, and then with the civil rights struggle, that that at least we had gotten that that we had um you know that we had succeeded, that we had dealt with 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 these contradictions and these issues and these injustices. And and there was also the feeling, oh my God, you know, let's not be dragged back continually into this kind of fight over race. So that was the feeling among some people. And when I got to South Africa, I found it really, really refreshing. That might not be the right word, but a relief or interesting that the country talked about race uh, a lot more openly. I think a lot of Americans have that experience when they come to South Africa. At the same time, I do think, and it's something that I hope is interesting about the book, which is um, an experience that I began to have. So I learned Afrikaans, learned to speak Afrikaans pretty fluently at one stage. I learned some... Before you went to Belgium. What? No, in fact, <laughs> that was a- after Belgium, and I Flemish sounded quite funny to me when I was uh, when I was in Belgium. But but I came to really enjoy Afrikaans poetry. Um, I did learn to speak it. I learned to speak a little bit of some sepedi while I was working out in um, in Burgersfort, and I found that people would say to me continually, "I have memories." of things that I experienced when I was younger that I went through that I almost feel like I can't, I I can't, they're not, I can't make them part of my story. I can't dwell on them. I can't talk about them to other people. I'll give one example. There's a guy I met in a, who was a clerk in a store and we got to talking about this book and he said, you know, I, I would love to read about how all these people experienced the early nineties because I was a teenager in an Afrikaans community in Ferenichen. And I was about 13 in 1994, 14. In the six months leading up to it, we had commandos, we had whole emergency plans, radios, escape rooms, like places we would hide that we were all gearing up for this, this vote. Like just in case, you know, we were quite, the community was very fearful. Like, and as the, as a teenager, I was terror, I was fearful. Like, you know, we were told there would be this stuff that would come on over the radio and then we would have to hide in a closet and there were guns and, you know, in case there were rioting. And then I think people were a bit embarrassed that they had made all of these preparations and this kind of chaos didn't occur. It was all em- em- embarrassing. So it just was like... People had years of supplies of tin baked beans oh. and tuna fish just in case, I am told. Oh, Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And now, you know, and then he said it was like the day after everything was really peaceful. Everyone that just nobody talked about that ever again. All that prep. You know, it was as if it just but I found he said I found it really frightening and traumatizing and it's weird and I want to be able to recall it and and you know, it happened. Um <laughs> uh, it was not it was it was a mistake of, you know, uh, of of prediction, but 
But it happened to me and it's just, it's like it's been sort of wiped. And now there's this lacuna in my own recollection. And so in the book, I was really, really, really trying to draw out. But I also, you know, some of those things that I think as an American reporter who also spoke some of some languages, had some familiarity, maybe some people were more open with me than they might be with, in his case, to say that to another South African could be embarrassing. It could feel like you're locating yourself, you know, you're admitting that your community, your parents were a certain, you know, type. And um, so there's a lot of yeah. yeah. This you you will. I, I do recommend it if you can track down O'Rourke's uh, essay. Uh, you'll find it vastly entertaining. Because I love O'Rourke actually, but I never came. I never read that one. I didn't oh, realize yeah. he was here. Funny. I don't know why he was here, except that he went to all kinds of strange places. He just happened to be here uh, in the middle of the uh, state of emergency in the, in the mid 1980s, and rather foolishly perhaps rented a car and then drove to meet somebody in the middle of Soweto and was surrounded by a crowd. And he said, I think that I, I thought they were going to pull me out of the car and barbecue me on the hood. And he said they were waving and saying hello. I was driving with my mother in Washington a couple of years ago, and it was late at night in Washington, D.C., and she saw some black African-Americans in kind of far front in front of us on the street. And, and she was quite nervous. It was a certain neighborhood. And we pulled closer. And then we realized that it was very well-dressed people who'd come from a restaurant and they were gesticulating, you know, like in a, in an excited way. They were, they were maybe, you know, whatever. Talking like, about the food. Talking about the food. Yeah. Or, you know, and, uh, and it was fast, you know, I just realized there's, there are these things that, that lie so deep, this assumption that, Somebody looking like that from a distance would maybe be dangerous. I used to go often into both Deep Sloot and Soweto to do work. And I, I had a person that I knew here who was from a farming background um, in in the Karoo. And he once said, you know, I really wish I could come to Meadowlands with you because he had read a little bit of my writing about this this young woman, young black woman growing up there, Malaika. And you know, I, I would love to meet someone like her and 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 sit around and chat on the street. And but it's too dangerous. And I said, you know, uh, I'm now known in this neighborhood. We can go in during the day. Certainly, it's it's fine. It's fine. And he said, no, I just I can't go. I can't go. And I realized that if he decided that it was totally safe, it would make his decisions never to go in the past seem more unreasonable and mm. would kind of enhance his enhance it would it would make it a little more yeah just unreasonable illegitimate so in a way he he had to had to sustain that view it was quite a subtle thing that he was communicating to me but i've been meaning to ask throughout our discussion now that you're back now that you're you're doing your book tour and you're checking up with old friends are you going to have a, a reunion dinner with the three main characters in which you can discuss how they've changed in the interim? Uh, so I did have that with um, one of them. Um, in they, they're, so one's living in Bloemfontein, other in Johannesburg. I did go to Bloemfontein and get a kind of tour of a new project that this 
this man is working on. And um, there are some reasons which one can read in the book why that won't work for some of the the figures. But, you know, I had different, I could never really predict. There were people that I spoke to, not the most central ones, but who who told me things that I would have thought were really even potentially legally compromising. I mean, I did some work with a lawyer to make sure I wasn't compromising anybody or, you know, that might make them look, you know, I think this is a, like the, like some other places like the U S but an environment where there are some concerns, you know, you can say something that will make you kind of look bad morally, publicly, you know, either too woke, not woke enough, whatever. And they were super, super enthusiastic about the book and others felt more, ambivalent. It's always interesting as a writer dealing with real people and real material, you want to make sure that they recognize themselves in the portrait, but you also can't necessarily, my goal isn't uh, with uh, to, to make something that everyone feels made them look phenomenal, right? Yeah. You have to be able to allow them to see themselves in that mirror, but without Washing away blemishes and warts and, and what have you. You, I mean, it has to be real. It has to almost be super, super realist. If you want to borrow a painting term without necessarily revealing everything. I also think it's one, it's a feature of, of a, a number of contemporary societies that we very often believe that what we believe is quite sincere, but we look for other motives in people who disagree with us. So, you know, that they just want a certain type of fame or let's say, you know, Julius Malema. I think a lot of people won't necessarily think, oh, he's just inflamed with passion for justice on behalf of the poor, right? You know, there's an assumption, there's a feeling that he, you know, wants notoriety, that he wants a certain type of disruptive influence or even kind of money from certain type of people. And I think what I tried to do with the book is, is have both of those, which is to allow a lot of different people to present themselves as they present themselves, but to also have that, I don't want to say critical view, but a a little bit of my own, I'm not absent as a reporter. And I I do sometimes listen to people you know, say why they've done things, why they've, um, you know, pursued lawsuits against people, why they voted for the ANC or whatever. And I will step back and say, I wondered if they were really trying to say this, or I wondered if they were worried about their standing within their local community and they felt that they couldn't betray X or Y people. So there's a, those different levels of psychological analysis. Well, I mean, one thing that's always troubling for people who are doing Something like this, a, you know, a report of people's behavior, feelings, histories, thoughts, future wishes. Did you use the real names or are they, are they pseudonyms? They're real first names. Yes. Okay. Real names. If they worked hard enough, they could find themselves in that book. If they went to their local neighborhood bookstore, bought it, read it, say, hey, that's me. Oh, well, there's, there's a number of people who have full names. It was, First names mostly I used for the main characters because it was so intimate and so revealing and they revealed some really intimate things about their relationships with their families and, and their approaches to love and stuff that, that that's what we talked about. They wanted first names. There are people who full names are used. The other things that I did was 
I feel that if all I do is do formal interviews, you know, sort of formal reporter-ish interviews like you might see on a television show about a reporter where there's a reporter who, you know, has is this on the record holding microphone, um, that, that there's some elements that are going to be missing from my writing, even as nonfiction, because there's so many things that people say when they don't think certain types of others are listening. So I have anecdotes in there that when I was at parties, um, that is all anonymous, but that I felt that where people were really unguarded and I felt it was important to, to reveal some of those, um, because there's a big effort in South Africa, I think, on the part of different political parties, different cohorts, different groups of people to present themselves. And I understand it. It's understandable. But so the strong desire to present yourself as the moral act, you know, the moral actor. And yeah, I'm the moral arbiter. Everybody else is foolish or, or denuded or deluded. Yeah. But if you're at a an event backstage with a whole lot of ANC people, you know, you will hear like, Geez, you know, where did it all go? (laughs) There's people are a lot more candid than we understand about that, but not necessarily on tape. So um, that's an element of my writing that I feel really strongly about. We're going to take another another break. Uh, We're speaking with Eve Fairbanks about her new book, uh, The Inheritors. Uh, and we'll be right back for some closing words. This is Brooke Spector with The Deep Dive. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we're back with The Deep Dive. I'm Brooke Spector, and we are doing a deep dive into E. Fairbanks' book, uh, the Inheritors, which profiles, examines, thinks about, analyzes, thinks deeply about the questions that are raised by her characters who are real people, even if they have a certain quality of good fiction about them. Good fiction makes the characters real, and uh, reality reporting can bring the quality of writing a novel to reporting. Um in the in a minute, say, um, what would you want a reader to to take away from this book? I, I'll give you about two or three minutes to do that if you if you'd like. What after someone has read it, what should they what should they understand? Figures, characters, real people, types of figures like A and C, you know, bigwigs. Um, uh, DA, opposition politicians, that the, the people that I mean, they might encounter in stores, whatever it is, who they find, whose actions they find really baffling at times, that these people were also forged in the same crucible as, I don't want to say we all were, you know, I'm not South African, but as, as, as everyone here was. And I wouldn't say, you know, these people, therefore they deserve your sympathy or, but I just think that's the beginning. That's a, that's something worth really, really, really understanding. And then, and then you can decide where to go from there. You know, it doesn't mean that, that, that their actions now deserve sympathy, but it's really important to understand, I think. And you have to understand how they got to those actions, I guess. I think that's the, 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 what was the mental gymnastics or calculus that they used as they got there with those views and ideas and attitudes, yes? 
Yeah, and the vast majority of people, even boogeymen of the moment in South Africa, are are able to tell themselves a story that excuses or justifies or even makes comprehensible their path. And I think, again, it's important to understand what story they might be able to construct and tell themselves. We have been speaking with Eve Fairbanks about her new book, The Inheritors. Um, she's been a correspondent in various ways and places for reputable and serious, serious publications. But this book is a much more intimate look at the, the things that made up the way South Africans are, uh, as seen through primarily the lives of three people. Uh, it's available in bookstores now. I, I've seen it on bookshelves. I recommend that you buy it, or at the very minimum, uh, you steal it from one of your friends. <laughs> Hold up a picture of that book. It's got, so I can see what color it is so we can say what it is. Um, it's got a yellow cover with, yes, there we go. Uh, sort of a, a, a yellow tan cover. The word inheritors is, the words inheritors are big and bold in the center. Um, do take a look at it. Uh, it's, it's a worthy read. Uh, it's been a great fun to talk to you, Eve. I, I appreciate this and we hope your sales go well. Thank you. Thank you. You asked great questions. Really interesting. Great. I hope they weren't the same questions you've been getting all the rest of your book tour because that they was actually weren't. And I have been getting a lot of, a lot of the same questions. These were different. So that was great. I hope, hope people enjoyed it. That's my job. Ask questions yeah. that nobody knows the answer to. This is Brooke Spector, The Deep Dive, and we'll be back next week with a different guest on another topic of interest and import for our listeners. Have a good weekend, and we'll talk to you again next week.